Coast to coast, nonstop action. This is the premier source for National Hockey League news. Scores, highlights, and the Anaheim Ducks. It's time to light the lamp with Alexis Downing. Welcome to Light the Lamp here on Duck Stream from the Paul Korea studio. I am your host, Alexis Downey. This week has just been flying by, and it's been super busy here with the Ducks with all of the games that they've had on the road. I can't believe it's already the weekend. And to note, it's also officially one week until the trade deadline, that being on March 3rd. And there's certainly been some action this week surrounding trades, and I can imagine that there will be a lot over the weekend, too. Now, the Ducks played game three of their road trip on Thursday night in the nation's capital and the Ducks playing the Caps really at the right time as they'd go on to hand them their sixth straight loss. Definitely a bounce back game from Tuesday night in Tampa Bay. It was just a strong overall performance from Anaheim in a four to two win for the Ducks. So let's get to AD's takeaways now. We saw a big addition back into the lineup on Thursday as Troy Terry returned after missing seven games. He was on the IR with an upper body injury. Now he really helped keep the pace going with the team. That was the one thing that I specifically noticed. Also on their zone entrances, the team just looked a lot more confident on those with Terry in the lineup. Adam Henrique, though, still not playing. He is week to week and on the injured reserve now, looking at the game, TJ Oshie got the Capitals on the board as the only goal in the first period. So a little bit of a different story from what we've been seeing in the previous two games on this road trip. But then the Ducks went on to score three unanswered goals, beginning with Troy Terry's goal in the scrum in front of the net in the crease midway through the second period. Not sure how the puck found the back of the net there, but it was able to. And then, of course, Jakob Silverberg had the game winner early in the third period off a pass from Max Comtois, and he also made Ducks history with that goal. He is now seventh all-time on the goals list for the Ducks organization with that one. It was also his seventh goal of the season, but now he has 148 all with the Ducks. And then to wrap up the game, Derek Grant added an empty netter to cap off the win. And this was a special one for Ryan Strom because now he remains undefeated when playing against his brother, Dylan Strom. He is a perfect 7-0, so pretty cool for Ryan Strom, a friend of Duckstream. And then also, John Gibson, his 10th game with 40 or more saves this season. He had 41 saves on 43 shots, and he set another record. This one coming on his 21st save in the game as it was his overall 1,323rd of the year to date. That is the most by any NHL netminder through their first 40 games of the season. So John Gibson just standing on his head as per usual all season long. A couple more things that I liked from this game. I thought the Ducks played a physical game. They didn't back down from some of the Caps' bigger guys. And they also had some timely scoring. And that just goes hand in hand with the three unanswered goals. The Ducks will complete their road trip on Saturday in Raleigh. Now it's time to go coast to coast with goal calls from around the league on Thursday. And of course, we're going to start with the Ducks and Capitals game on Thursday. Jakob Silverberg's goal in the third period off the pass, like I said, from Comtois that would go on to be the eventual game winner. Steve Carroll has the call from Capital One Arena. 
Uh, Derek Grant is cross-checked down to the ice by Wilson. Here's a break for Anaheim. Two on one. Puck centered. Silverberg shoots. Scores! Jacob Silverberg beats Lindgren on a two on one breakaway for Anaheim. And they jump ahead by a score of three to two on a pretty passing play. Also on Thursday night, the New Jersey Devils had a come-from-behind win at home against the LA Kings, a 4-3 win in overtime. The Kings did get out to an early two-goal lead in the first period, but the Devils worked their way back into this game in the next two frames. Nico Heischer tied the game up with just 39 seconds left in the game to force overtime. And it was Dawson Mercer who would go on to get his second goal of the game. And it was a big one as it was the winner, bringing New Jersey to 7-2-1 and in their last 10 games. Matt Laughlin shared the call of the winner for the Devils. Vanacek comes out, gives it off to Hamilton. Now for Dawson Mercer. 2.38 to go in overtime. Mercer applies the brakes, looks around, has some room. Hands it off, Hamilton in deep in front, they score! Overtime game winner, it's Dawson Mercer and the Devils win 4-3. The Minnesota Wild blanked the Columbus Blue Jackets on Thursday 2-0 and it was a special night in the net for Wild goaltender Marc-Andre Fleury as he had a shutout and now... This brings him to a special record. He has shutouts against 29 of the 32 teams in the NHL. The only teams remaining on that list that he does not have a shutout against, well, the Vegas Golden Knights, the St. Louis Blues, and then the Minnesota Wild. Listen to the call of one of the saves from Flurry and some final thoughts from Joe O'Donnell. Columbus able to follow it up and drill it in. Zuccarello turned it over. Johnny Gaudreau in the slot. Wristing a shot. Fought off by Fleury. Rebound. It's down in the blue paint. The net off its moorings. And a whistle is somehow it stayed out. Five seconds to go. One last chance for Columbus. They can't get it over the offensive line cleanly. And that's going to do it. The Minnesota Wild shut out the Blue Jackets here at Nationwide Arena. They pick up a 2-0 win as Marc-Andre Fleury gets his 73rd career shutout. His second this season. And the Wild have won four in a row for the first time since December when they picked up six straight wins from December the 10th to December the 21st. And what a clean, well-played defensive game by the Wild here on the road tonight. And the last game to wrap up this coast-to-coast, the Vegas Golden Knights taking on the Calgary Flames. And it was a 4-3 to overtime win for the Golden Knights after they also fought from behind down at one point three to one in that game. And it was the third period that made all the difference with Vegas getting two goals to tie it up and force that extra period. Alex Petrangelo then went on to tap in the winner off a shot from Jonathan Marcheseau just 42 seconds into overtime. Now Vegas remains on top of the Western Conference with 75 points through the season. Listen to the call from Dan Duva. Michael already with a goal today. He'll skate intentionally to the neutral zone, all the way back to his own blue line. Now he turns up ice, Calgary changing, three on two across the line. In the middle, Marcia show, he hits the crossbar, it's in the goal! Jonathan Marcia in overtime, Vegas four, Calgary three.
Eichel will get his 250th assist. Setting up Jonathan Marcheseau. Hit the crossbar. It went down to the ice. The referee signaled good goal. Whether Marcheseau gets it or it was the little tuck at the line. Either way, it's a good goal. And the Knights, down two in the third, come back to beat the Flames. They've now got their 35th win, and their overtime record improves to 6-3. and three. They've evened the season series with the Calgary Flames. And as I mentioned, the trade deadline is coming up soon, just one week away. And another big trade happened on Thursday this week when the Boston Bruins acquired Dmitry Orlov and Garnett Hathaway from the Washington Capitals ahead of the Caps game against the Ducks in exchange for Craig Smith and some draft picks. I dive into that and more with today's guest. Frank Saravalli joins us to share some of his thoughts on teams ahead of the trade deadline, as well as where he believes Anaheim is at right now. Take a listen. Welcome on to Light the Lamp Now, hockey insider and president of hockey content for the Daily Faceoff, Frank Saravalli. Frank, thank you for joining us today on this Friday. How's your week been going? Uh, it's been busy. Lack of sleep, I guess, is the big thing. This is one of those times a year where I'm actually a little bit afraid to go to sleep. Turn my phone on loud and constantly checking it throughout the night just to make sure I'm not missing anything. You know, I was going to ask what your deadline workflow looks like. I mean, I obviously very busy, but I mean, what does a day look like as you get closer to the deadline? It's kind of just hair on fire, Alexis. Like it's one of those things where I've got a bunch of different commitments and, um, you know, places to be for regular shows and, and podcasts and radio appearances and TV hits. And then I'm also trying to crank out stories for the website and then kind of in cracks in between all of that, I'm making calls to managers, to agents, to coaches, players even that are, uh, you know, potentially being traded. They're checking in with me saying, hey, what's up? Where am I going? What's what's going on? And uh, it's there's just a lot happening at this time of year. And so this year, I guess I kind of added to my plate a little bit. I don't know what I was thinking, but starting 60 days out from the deadline on January 3rd, I decided to do one trade deadline story per day at Ooh. dailyfaceoff.com. And it's just like, oh, like, just help <laughs> yourself. Like, you did not need to do that. So uh, it's been fun, but also like exhausting. And uh, I'm really looking forward to March 4th. I know you've been traveling a bit recently to the stadium series. Uh, you're a Philadelphia guy. I saw you went to the Super Bowl as well, too. Sorry about how that, yeah. that played out. But uh, what was the stadium experience series experience like? It was amazing. Um, I've been to 21 outdoor games, Alexis, and I would say that this one was easily in the top three. It was an all out party from the second you got near the stadium through the end of the night, like picture full on college game day experience, about 55, 58 degrees in the afternoon in February in Raleigh. You've got you know, the tailgates and the beer pong and the ice luge, <laughs> but also like the grill smoking and the sweet smell of Carolina barbecue that's wafting in the pines. And it was just, it was an amazing atmosphere. The marching band, uh, the student section, the cheerleaders, like they had all these amazing touches uh, from the NC State campus where they share a parking lot there, the stadium with the Hurricanes Arena, PNC Arena. And it was just, it was so well done. It looked good. It looked cool. And, and for a market that, 
you know, had been waiting so long to play outdoors. They were the 28th out of 32 teams to do it. And there's only a few left that haven't, Mm -hmm. that this was an adventure that they had been waiting for, for a long time. And you could tell that. And kind of the amazing part about it all happening is that it comes together at a time when the hurricanes have one of the very best teams in the league. Absolutely. I saw you also recently interviewed hurricanes owner, um, and on your podcast, uh, you know, what were some of your takeaways from that and talking with him, especially with the competitive team that they have this season? Yeah, well, he's in a little bit of a different situation than, say, a team like the Ducks are. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Dundon, the Hurricanes owner, is very involved with every part of what happens with the makeup of that team. And so they've sort of been able to marry the um, hockey IQ and sense that they have in their department, not just with Don Waddell, their general manager, but also Rod Brindamore, their coach, is heavily involved, and, and Eric Tolsky, their assistant GM, that they take that and then Tom Dundon, if you listen to the, the pod, it's called Frankly Speaking, he has this, you know, as any sort of mega hundred millionaire type guy would, he has this ability to ask questions that he says, like, you don't need to be a hockey guy to, to challenge some of the decision-making process. And it's not to question the acumen or hockey acumen of, of the hockey side. It's to produce the best result possible, to, uh, to push them in a direction that really makes sense, not just for the here and now, but also for the long term. And so I'm sure, uh, you know, at the very top of the Ducks, uh, some of those conversations occur, you know, when it comes to, you know, trade deadline or the summer or signing players and the Samuelis are, are involved in some small way, but not in any sort of, you know, super hands on way that a team like Carolina has. Now, on Thursday, you shared that teams are going to be moving money ahead of the deadline next Friday, March 3rd. And two of those teams that you mentioned were the Vancouver Canucks and the Montreal Canadiens. Were you surprised that they were a part of the third party broker list? Not really. And the reason for that is because both those teams have some LTIR space. Mm-hmm. Um, the Canucks have it from Ilya Mikheyev and a couple other guys. The The Canadians have it as well. And and Alexis, I'd expect the Ducks will be heavily involved in that market. I think they've already done some legwork and homework. Pat Verbeek has in setting up some potential connections, um, you know, around the league to, you know, in case a team needs help, that the Ducks are, are one of those outlets and, and avenues uh, for the ability to recoup some, some assets and picks. So the Ducks are ready to weaponize their salary cap. And the reason why I'm not surprised those other teams aren't is because, for one, uh, you know, the Canucks, the the Habs are already there, but the Canucks are heading down this retool or rebuild, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I always say cap space, you, you can't take it with you. It doesn't, you know, roll over to next season. So you might as well take advantage of it while you can. And if you don't envision using it for the rest of the year, which neither one of those teams are going to be playoff teams. This is the best way in a small lowercase way to really add some more bullets to your chamber to draft players in the summer. You mentioned Anaheim in this situation. Do you think that they can be crafty in that role? A hundred percent. Pat Verbeek's already made the calls to do so. He's got his friends and connections around the league and, um, you know, they've got the cap space and they also have the want and need for, assets for draft picks like you know that's one of the things for me that 
you know, and talking to, to people around the league is there's been this situation that's unfolded where um, draft picks between rounds four through seven, they haven't, there's no incremental value for whatever reason. There's no, you know, a fourth round pick when you look at the percentages of making it to the NHL is not all that different than a seventh round pick. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't exist in other sports. You know, a fourth round pick is worth a lot more in the NFL than it is in the, in the, in uh, a seventh. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think the really smart teams have keyed in on the volume and and just having more cracks at it. That's one. And I think the other teams are starting to recognize that, you know, when you look at the player pool, maybe the answer to that question is that there just aren't enough really talented players in a draft class to be able to distinguish between fourth and seventh round. So there's kind of this push and pull and debate that exists in front offices. And I always subscribe to the theory of more is better. Like if you have four fourth round picks, like that's better than having just one. So a team like Anaheim, which has really invested in the scouting part of it, and that's sort of the nature that Pat Verbeek comes from, his background, is that they might be able to really take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. You also have your trade targets list on the daily face-off, and at number 12 is John Klingberg. Obviously, he hasn't had the season that we might have hoped he would have when he signed here over the summer, but do you think that that could potentially be a concern for teams when they look at him? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that his stock has dropped pretty precipitously this year, and that's not a knock on on John. Um, I think he came to Anaheim with all of the best intentions, And I think obviously the Ducks did as well. Um, They were trying to find a fit and they needed help on their blue line. They still need a lot of help on their blue line. And that's one of the things moving forward that I think is actually going to be Pat Verbeek's biggest challenge is they've got some really nice prospects coming on the back end, but they're not ready and they're not going to be ready next season. And so how do you continue to surround Cam Fowler, for instance, with the pieces required to be a more competitive team, Mm -hmm. as much as you'd like to do that, you can't just go out and sign six defensemen, Mm -hmm. you know, in the summer to, to get there. Um, It's hard to do. It's hard to find that many pieces available. And so Klingberg comes in, you're hoping that he's either a a fit that you want to keep, which I think was always on the table as a possibility when the year started or as it's unfolded, the in the back of everyone's mind was, you know, the Ducks kind of just bought themselves a first round pick. That was the thought process. It was like, this guy's going to have a monster year and we're going to move him for something pretty awesome at the deadline. And he struggled. And I think part of it has been between the years. Part of it has been the lack of support from around him. And now he's in a spot where the Ducks aren't going to get as much as they'd like back. And he has to now deal with the pressure of going to his next team and really making an impact to get some of the money that he thought he might have been getting on a long-term, more secure deal prior to the summer. It's a really hard place for John Klingberg to be in. And so um, I feel for him. Um, I think that there's probably also some other things going on behind the scenes where He may have turned down a deal at some point with either the stars or on the free agent market. I think it was with Dallas where he would have had a lot more security. And I am always a believer in betting on yourself. Mm -hmm. But now 
he's not going to get to that long-term security. He's still a, a wealthy man by any standards, but um, it's just not really played out as anyone would hope. Dmitry Kulikov, another name also on the list for you. Uh, what kind of value do you think he could provide for a team? I think when you look relative to the prices that are going to be paid for other defensemen on the rental market, this trade deadline, Kulikov, I think pre presents a unique little value addition. Like the, the Ducks aren't going to get a lot in return for him, but what another team can get from him, I think is probably going to exceed that based on the market prices. So um, he's, He's not flashy. There's nothing like sort of sexy about his game. Um, he, you know, for the most part, when when Dmitry Kulikov is playing well, you don't notice him. And that's a good thing. Um, he is prone, I think, to the sort of home run grand slam mistake. The, the pizza served up the middle every now and again. And look, everyone has, you know, some part of their game that is a flaw. For him, that's it. And if he can cut those down, he's a really nice third pair option for a team or an insurance piece uh, for a team as they head into the Stanley Cup playoffs. In terms of the Ducks organization as a whole, we have some young NHL talent, 21 and under here, as well as a big prospect pool. What is your outlook of the organization as we move into the future? Well, I think it's exciting because there's a lot of pieces there that you can build around. Um, I also think that there's some question marks in the here and now as to kind of who will be staying. Um, you know, Pat Verbeek, I think, has done a great job of amassing capital. And now it's up to his scouting staff and him to really deliver on the, the picks that they do have in their arsenal. And and. I think they've done that to this point. I talked about some of the exciting pieces that they have on their back end. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, when you look at the sort of general core of this team, you know, with, with Troy Terry and Trevor Zegras and Lundestrom, you know, they're, they're in a spot where they can continue to build. I think my worry is when you have Cam Fowler on the wrong side of 30, when you have John Gibson on the wrong side of 30, that there's still going to be more years of pain. Mm. And that's the tough part for everyone to kind of wrap their heads around is like, it's already pretty ugly this year to get through, you know, to think that we have a few more years of this, um, I think is tough for any fan base to, to stomach. And so um, I guess the thing would be coming from Philly, uh, the big slogan here watching the Sixers being built was trust the process. Mm. And it became a hashtag, TTP. That's really what you're looking at with the Ducks moving forward is trust Pat Verbeek, trust his eye, his scouting sense, his hockey sense. And he's been around some incredibly smart people um, getting, you know, sort of firsthand tutelage from Steve Eiserman and watching what he built in Tampa and watching what is coming to fruition now in Detroit, even if it's taking a little bit longer than anyone might've anticipated that the blueprint and playbook is there. Now it's about executing. And even if there's going to be some more lean years, I like what Anaheim has already assembled. And I think everyone's really going to like it when they start to see it come together. 
Well, the Ducks just played the Capitals last night, and yesterday there was a big trade with the Bruins acquiring Dmitry Orlov and Garnett Hathaway. Uh, what was your initial reaction to that? I really like this piece of business from the Boston Bruins perspective. You take a team that's been more or less a world beater this season, threatening for you know, the potential to set a new NHL record in points in a season. Um, it's they don't lose and they really don't lose in regulation. They barely lose on home ice. Um, so you take a team that not only has been unbelievable, but has these sort of, if you watch the Michael Jordan series on ESPN, this, the last dance vibes, mm -hmm. they've got those. And so they've got Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci probably in the last year of their deals. Um, David Pasternak, who I believe is either close to being signed or depending on who you may ask, that deal may be close to already done. Um, they're like, he's going to be around for a bit. And now they've added these other pieces, you know, Hampus Lindholm on the back end, um, you know, Charlie McAvoy is there and Brad Marchand is there. And so they have this group that they now add Orlov and Hathaway that I think can help put them over the top. Orlov is an instant, you know, ready-made top four defenseman who's had a strong year and a strong 10 years in Washington. Um, and Hathaway, I think, is such an underrated, valuable piece, a Swiss Army knife guy mm. that is so reliable and brings so many different elements to your team. Um, I, I actually, as much as everyone is, is loving the Orloff part of it, I like the Hathaway part of it more as sort of an under the radar piece. So when you consider the price paid a first, second and a third, it's essentially boils down to a first for Orlov, a second for Hathaway and a third to take back Craig Smith, that it seems like a very reasonable package for the Boston Bruins and the price to pay because on a lot of deals separately, it might be like a first for Orlov plus a third or plus a fourth just mm -hmm. to get Orlov. And now you add in the second for Hathaway. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, it really seems to fit nicely. Another fit, it seems, in Toronto has been Ryan O'Reilly already making his mark there. Do you think that the Maple Leafs have enough to maybe push in the postseason this year, despite how competitive the East is going to be? Well, I think that's my real concern when it boils down to it all at the end of the day. And everyone's been super excited about Ryan O'Reilly and the addition. And I understand the fit and how he helps this Leaf team. And I do think that when you take a 2019 Conn Smythe winner and inject him into your lineup and he gets a shot in the arm from coming essentially to his hometown team, that that is a huge boost. Mm -hmm. I think the price to pay was really significant. And I'm really curious to see what else Toronto ends up doing between now and the deadline. Do they add a defenseman to their blue line? Because that's the issue that I keep coming back to is their path. Mm. And it's, you know, the answer isn't to just sulk back and, and do nothing. But I do think when you consider Tampa, then potentially Boston and Carolina, and look, the Stanley Cup playoffs are completely random. You don't know how it's going to shape up. But if that is the gauntlet that you have to run through, well, I look at those three teams and I say all three of those teams have a significant edge in defense and particularly in goaltending. Mm. And so 
the Leafs haven't addressed any of those real needs. And I know that they've been a strong defensive team this season. And Sam Sonoff has been fine in that. But Matt Murray's injured again. And I look at Vasilevsky and I look at Olmark, who's going to win the Vezina. And I look at the way Carolina defends with probably the best blue line in the league. And I say, that's a decided edge and advantage. And all of those teams have great forward groups too. It's not like, you know, as good as Matthews and now add O'Reilly into Marner and Tavares and the whole group and Nylander. You have Bergeron, Pasternak, Krejci, Marchand, all these guys in Boston, Kucherov, Stamkos, Point, like great pieces in Florida. And and then Carolina's got Aho, the most lowercase superstar in the league, and Svechnikov, the sniper, and they're probably going to get stronger with an aggressive deadline. So I just don't like the path for the Leafs, Mm. and that to me is what sets it back in terms of the overall fit and how I view it. Frank, what other teams will you be keeping your eye on this week? All all 32, (laughs) um, to be fair. But um, in terms of being active at the deadline, I just talked about Carolina and and really what they might be up to. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're, you know, right in the mix for Timo Meyer from San Jose. Uh, What kind of ripple effect does that have on the New Jersey Devils? Um, Patrick Kane, could he potentially go to the New York Rangers? We talked about Toronto and their back end Tampa, probably likely to make a sneaky move, um, to really round out their group, not a big high priced acquisition, but someone that they feel is a curated fit that could help. Uh, how aggressive will the Pittsburgh Penguins be is another, Mm. um, Winnipeg, no one's really talked about in Dallas. I think both those teams are in kind of similar situations, veteran cores for the most part that have been really consistent this season that I could see both of them going after a scoring winger. Um, And Vegas is such a big wild card, pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) They're just a team that always is in the mix to do something splashy. And I just, they've got limitations in terms of what they can pull off not cap space wise, but I think maybe asset wise, that it's going to be really curious to see how creative they can get. And same thing with the Edmonton Oilers. They have a great team that's ready to take off with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, but um, I think still needs a little bit of help. And that leaves one more team, the Colorado Avalanche. Mm-hmm. Um, with their team winning the Stanley Cup last year, riddled by injuries this year. It just doesn't feel like their year. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if they're able to get healthy, they're obviously going to be in the playoffs, I think, that they've got an opportunity to get everyone healthy at the right time and do some damage. And if they could – I know they said they don't really need a second-line center. I still think that's their big void, not having properly replaced Nazem Kadri. Frank Saravalli, thank you for joining us here on Light the Lamp. And uh, we'll keep our eye on what happens in the next week. Alexis, great to be with you and absolutely love what you guys are doing with DuckStream. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. And it's time for my final quack for this episode, where I share my last thoughts before the end of the week. The Ducks complete their road trip on Saturday in Raleigh, taking on the Carolina Hurricanes. And the Canes are going to be a tall task for the Ducks as they have been on fire as of late as they are 9-0-1 in their last 10 and four wins in a row right now for the Canes. But this will be in the Ducks' favor as they'll be getting the Canes on the later half of a back-to-back for the team. 
Thank you for listening to Light the Lamp. I am Alexis Downey. Come back again next week for more hockey talk right here on Duckstream. This is an Anaheim Ducks original production on Duckstream.